Welcome to Property and Investing with Grant and Charlie, the place where we give you access to all the strategies, tools, and tactics to become a successful property investor. Charlie, I was thinking about this. You know what would be super unexpected for us to do right now? I'd love to know. Continue on with the previous episode as a part number three. However, you know what isn't Hold unexpected? Up. I'm in shock right now. <laughs> you know what isn't it unexpected though? People who are on the newsletter would already know that this is a part two because they've read the newsletter. So if you're sitting here going, holy smokes, I feel like I've just been hit by something unexpected, i got a solution for you. Head over to propertyandinvesting.com forward slash newsletter, put in your name and email, and we'll actually tell you every single time we drop one of these episodes so you know what to expect. How was that? Now it. Bam, let's cue the disclaimer. It's Charlie here from Property and Investing, and I need to let you know that Grant and I and the Property Investing team are in no way, shape, or form qualified to give you financial advice. We strongly encourage you to seek out and use professionals when comparing investment products or making investment decisions. All right, Grant, here we are. Recording an unexpected part two to the unexpected challenges of being a property investor. Did you think we're going to have this many things to talk about? (laughs) When I did the prep for this episode, it shouldn't have been so easy to come up with so many points. I really feel. Totally. Do you think there's an industry problem where a lot of the successful property investors kind of portray this like rose-colored glasses type thing where it's like, oh, you know, it was so easy. Look at my Lambo. <laughs> they totally do. But I was thinking it, I reframed it the other way of like the rite of passage. It's like we got to make it hard to get rid of the riffraff. Like no one wants all the riffraff in at their party. Like you want the people that are there to party. Like, <laughs> so it's like this is like the we'll make it hard enough to maybe people buy one and then they're like, nah, I don't want anything else. This is too hard. It's like, yeah, that's it. So I thought it was that. I do really feel there is not enough picture around what it's like to actually be a property investor, though. A lot of people sell the end result of like achieving totally. the thing, but they don't describe the journey well. And I suspect when people do listen to this two-part episode that they'll actually be able to get hopefully some more realisticness around it and really put preventions in. I think everything on our list is actually uh, easily overcome with a little bit of preparation or foresight. It's just that you don't know what you don't know. Totally. I was... Yeah, like some of the things that we mentioned in the previous episode, which feel free to go and listen to it, it was once I started expecting the challenges, right? So I hit them for the first time. I'm like, I wonder if that's going to be the same. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, no, it's the same every single time. Now I expect it. So when it actually kind of goes smoother than usual, I'm like, oh, that's good. (laughs) This is is actually good. I think you've got to be careful how you say that. You're setting the expectation that you're going to meet one set of challenges on the first property and then they're exactly the same on the second. They're definitely not. It's like, oh, I got punched in the face. And then you go to the next one. Ah, knifed me in the back this time, I see. (laughs) That was actually fair when I bought in like a different state. And I'm like, oh, oh, you states do this stuff differently, huh? (laughs) Oh, can we put that in? Unexpected challenge. It turns out if you buy property in different states, the process of buying a property is different. Also, the land tax is different. You never think, uh, land, yeah, you, you never go, oh, yeah, this is one country is totally going to be different. <laughs> I didn't realize how much power the states have. I really oh, did yeah. think nationally was the game. I thought Australia was just operating under a national umbrella, buy a property in Perth, buy one in Queensland, same process will prevail. 
Yeah. Not at all. Dude, papers are different. Documents are different. Requirements are different. The ten- tenants are very different. Like so much. Anyway, I don't want to take all the points. Do you want to kick off this one? Yeah, I will. I am going to hog it on this one. No, not really. Do it. Um, do it. All right, so this is another thing that came into it. I think property investing gets sold to the idea that it's, I'm going to say, relatively passive. And my finding is it's much more active than I thought it would be. But not only that, is you can choose to be more even, even more active, right? So there's like a minimum of activeness you can do and you'll probably do all right. But in property investing, there's actually the opportunity to be more active and get a better result which was unexpected to me. Now, I want to describe this a little bit before I kick the mic over because I know you're going to have some great examples of this. But to set some examples here is that you can actively, uh, for example, what's a good example? I really need to think through this more. I'm going to go with it. Bank valuations. So being more proactive with valuations. You can also do renovations. You can also be forefronted with pre-approvals on financing. There's things you can get into and do which actually enhance results, but they will require more of your time. Totally. Uh, like your refinancing one is so valuable. So uh, like recently, Hayes and I, we refinanced two of the properties by choice. Uh, we were in our right mind. We could have just sat there and just left them completely passive and gone, you know what, I can't be bothered dealing with this. Like no one was sitting there saying, Grant, you need to refinance. And I'm like, this is what I'm coming up against, which is making it more active than passive by choice. And it presented its own challenges, as you would know, when you go change banks and do refinancing and show your borrowing capacity and all those kind of fun things. Again, it was, again, one of those situations of actively by choice. Can I break that down? Because that's a so, great example. That's better than the example I came up with. <laughs> all right. So in this example here, Grant's bought a house and let's say he's had it for a year. Yep, He's made the choice to refinance it so he can potentially get some equity out or structure a loan in a better way so that he can access borrowing so he can buy another property quicker. So he can get into that next investment property in a much shorter time frame. If he wasn't as active and proactive in attacking the finance in this example, he'd potentially have to wait another year before the environment would be right or he had the deposit or the lending would be right so he could do it. So being more proactive and active in that way with the banks is actually enabled much more speed. Completely. Yeah, and so great that was, example. Yeah, and interesting enough because it stacked its deck against what I'm pushing for now, which is the accumulator where I needed more cash flow through my property to get more borrowing capacity. And the e- one of the easier ways for me to get more cash flow was just to refinance to a better mortgage. And these mortgages have dropped a bit. So like now I'm actively trying to get more borrowing capacity to actively go buy more properties to actively do the thing. And so it actually was part of many things that we were doing just to make sure that we can continue buying at the speed that we wanted to buy, which again, there is no one sitting there saying you have to. I could literally just say, oh, I'm ready to buy now. Let's buy another one. And then just wait. I'm ready to buy now. Buy another one, but I'm actively pushing. I've got some more examples. I thought of something. We went to all our property managers and asked them to work out what renovations could potentially get rents. Ah, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't have to do that. You never have to go out to them. And do you know what? Your property manager will never reach out to you and tell you to do this. So we actively went to each property manager, got them to do research of going, hey, well, if we put an aircon in, could we get the rent up 10 bucks? Or if we painted the house or a new kitchen, 
or an extension or whatever it is or renovation. We got that entire list and then actively started executing these projects because the ROI was there. Mm. It was a great way of actually improving the, in this case, yield on each one of our properties. We um we did something similar, but we actually actively are moving away from a property manager. And it was not that they were horrific. They just weren't very responsive, weren't very active. And I'm just like, no, my tenants require someone who is that they appreciate, that they like, that they're happy to reach out to and that will actually do the thing. And so, again, I could have just sat there and said, whatever, it's so easy, it's so cruisy, but I care about my tenants and I care about making sure that it's uh, it's looked after. I'm like, I actively want to go and look to find a better property manager to go and look after these tenants because they deserve something better. No one's going to stop me. No one's going to kill me if I don't change it. Like, it's like it's my choice to actively make a change. But again, it's just by choice. Insurance quotes. Another one, Bianca spent numerous time on the phone to different insurance companies negotiating what she can get. I know right now she saved us thousands of dollars a year by doing that. So it's great. Negotiating with banks on interest rates. Another one. These are, and I love that this list is nothing you have to do, but could you imagine you do all of these, what the difference in results is over time? And I think that that's why this was so unexpected, right? Because it's, they sound, they sound so logical. It's like, oh, you actually want someone to do the thing. Oh, you want a cheaper rate. Like you actually want a property manager that does the thing. Oh, you actually want a cheaper rate from a bank. Oh, you actually want to improve the value of your property through renovations. Uh, oh, like they're all logical. <laughs> they just present their own challenges that's optional. Well, no one's going to prod you to do it, as no. well, which I find really interesting. <laughs> no, and it's one of those things which like it's a pain in the neck at the time. But as you have your own pro- property portfolio, like you actually want to try and improve it. On top of it, but I'm putting one more in. Right, we get books done every month for our properties. We spend the time to pull together reports every month. Definitely not needed. But I tell you what, every month knowing the exact position I'm in and being dialed in with the numbers, <sighs> powerful decision making place to be. Like we're never guessing. Oh, I think the properties are like worth this and make about this, and like maybe we should buy again. You know what I'm curious? I'm curious about if anyone's listened to this. It's like, what do you guys actually do <laughs> in your property portfolio to make sure you get good returns? You know what? If you're on the newsletter, hit reply and just just prompt Charlie and just say, hey, that would be a good episode because I'm curious if people want to hear something like that. I actually concur. We should put that in our list anyway. <laughs> I would love some- it if people would reply, but the role of an active property investor would actually be a great episode. I refuse. I'm not going to do it unless someone I'm emails it, it to you. T- t- no, no. I'm t- someone has to right email now. you. <laughs> Once you're typing this down, uh, number point number two, which oh, well, for a previous episode, I don't even know what number we're up to now in the states. Uh, do you want to run off this one? Nice stall, Grant. Do you like that? Stall. Oh, we saw you were typing one. something down, and I'm like, stall, 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 stall. I'd be a great MC. Absolutely. So next one on this list here, <laughs> cash requirements. What do you mean? What do you mean by cash requirements, John? All right. When I looked at property, assumptions were made, dangerous word, that I'm borrowing money. So if I'm borrowing money, why do I need money? Isn't it the bank's money we're using to do this? Why is there so much of my money involved in this? Yeah. <clears throat> so to use a, an easy example, if I was going to buy a $500,000 home, I would and wanted to leave a 20% deposit, noting that you can use thing, do things like LMI and 90% loans. But in the ease of this example, 
$100,000 would be for the deposit and then $50,000 is roughly what I chew up in buyer's agent fees, pest and building, stamp Stamp. duty, trusts, accounting, all of it. So with every property I've bought on that ratio, so for every $500,000 I've spent, roughly 50 grand just evaporates. Yep. And that 50 grand comes out of my cash. So unexpectedly, the thinking I took into this is that if I'm going to leave a 20% deposit, you know, I only need that 100 grand where it's actually 150. Now, to go even further than this is like I have 11 uh, – I've done 11 purchases, I'll put it this way, and my portfolio is about 6 mil-ish at the moment. So those numbers kind of work out roughly that it's about 600 grand per purchase. Yep. So if you do the maths, if I'm spending 50 grand on every one of these, that's cash I'm contributing to the portfolio that isn't in those deposits. 300 so, grand is not going to increase? Yeah, so it disappears. I spoke to the government. They say thank you for stamps that you've been paying. Keep picking up those bins. Thank you. (laughs) That counts a bit. You know what? There's another layer to this that I found fascinating, which was the continuous income to have cash coming in for borrowing capacity and just how much of a challenge that is to make sure that you continue to play that game if you're looking to buy more. So I've had a lot of conversations around, well, how am I going to go about earning to increase or maintain a borrowing capacity to buy more? Right. So let's use that as an example here. Let's break that down. That's a big comment in itself. So you're buying investment properties here and then you're recognizing that the further you go into the journey, you almost need to increase your borrowing power to be able to keep accessing finance or wait long enough where rents increase or whatever it is. Yep, exactly. Okay. And so, yeah, so then I was surprised as to the cash requirements on the other side of like what the banks are looking at and how much they've changed on what I can borrow. And so the cash requirement from not just money in a bank account, but money coming in every single month consistently and reliably. So the bank's like, oh, yeah, you're a reliable person. Completely. I, I think we tackled this before, but the idea being if you buy a property that is positively geared, right, that's great. However, in that first year you buy that property, if you have renovations to do or if you have things you need to fix up, you may not actually be positively geared in that first year and that can kind of work against you. Completely. Uh, that was another interesting one on cash requirements. Or it, That's a little bit different because it's like you may think you're buying a positively geared property only to recognize that small renovation or repair you wanted to do or painting the place before it came in could actually like knock you backwards depending on the financial year timing as well. Or the broken oven, the broken back deck there's like there's the seven grand reno don't Charlie. it's not a pain i've ever faced <clears throat> well did you know what i did expect repairs and maintenance totally. and that's actually gone better than i thought <laughs> surprising it's like that's the one thing that most people push back on going i don't want to buy a used house because of all the repairs i'm going to have to do and you're sitting there saying and i would actually concur i've only ever had one that i had to really sort of fix up it was actually not as bad as i thought it would be i'm under budget substantially on my portfolio what i set aside every year for maintenance fingers crossed like and i still stack that cash just to be safe in case you know a roof or a bigger thing comes down yep but once a tenant is in and settled i have found that my maintenance has gone down substantially i'll throw one more unexpected on this is every time you bring a new tenant into a property that's when the most amount of maintenance is (laughs) because they expect things or because the other people break stuff on their way out 
I'll put it this way. Right now in my kitchen, there's a downlight that's out. It's got four downlights and it's a lot of natural light in that room as it is. I'm not replacing that light. I'm just used to it. But if someone came and rented this house and they did a walkthrough, it'd be like, oh, downlight's yeah, out. Downlight's Let me get out. that fixed. So it's all the little things that probably should be fixed in a home but people tend to live with. And like yep. light globe's a really good example one. Or maybe a door doesn't shut properly and they're yeah, just like, oh, that's okay. You need to bump it with your hip. And you're like, oh, it's just, it just when you close that door, just make sure you bump it with the hip. Yeah, and they've learned to live with it. We didn't know it was a maintenance <laughs> item and then it comes through on the tenant change. I've had that quite a few times. Um, we'll also few- throw out there is like there's this interesting thing where it, let's say someone lives in a type of property and the tower rails are like concreted to the wall. So they're very aggressive with them and it doesn't break. And then they come into your place and you've just got like normal screws and it's like their gorilla arms just come and rip that shit off the wall, right? It's So whatever the person's previous property, if the new one doesn't behave the same, they tend to break stuff. Yeah, totally. It's, it's funny that you mentioned that. I got one property that like the property reports keep coming back with like three or four things that are broken. And I'm like, ah, oh, look, we'll fix it when someone requests us to fix it. And I'm like, tenants, please just stay. <laughs> so I don't need to fix it. It's like they've just stopped using this air conditioner in one room. They've just stopped these things. I'm like, I'm happy to fix it. And the property manager's just like, no, just wait. Just see if they request it. I'm like, all right, fair enough. I'll throw in another one here. If you are going to be dealing with maintenance, renovations, a whole bunch of things, you're likely going to fund them out of cash as well. So in the broader topic of just how much cash is required, I would suggest the idea that you really do need to be able to continually have good liquidity in a portfolio. Mm-hmm. If you can continue to contribute new earnings from either employment or business to be able to fund your renovations or your repairs or your tax or whatever it is, the game of property is substantially easier. If you assume in the early stages particularly that like, oh, no, the property is going to look after itself – you might only have a small amount of cash flow having in each time. It may not be able to self-fund itself on that level initially. Noting yep. it should eventually get to that point, but you have to be aware of that, I think is an interesting point around this point as well. Yeah. Were you surprised? How much? Obviously, it was an unexpected was the cash requirements, but now are you continuously surprised? Like every time you're like, oh, man, I forgot about that or I didn't realize that. Like is this a constant pop-up for you now or is it more of a, oh, when I got in, I just did not know. It was far more drastic than I re- than I expected. Mm. So I did my accumulator run quite a few years back now, and you're about to experience this, so heads up. So the idea being, I think if you look at it, we bought eight properties in like 16 months. Yep. All right, so again on stamp duty and buyer's agent fees, can you just imagine how much cash is just evaporating from it's my depleting. bank account? Yeah. yeah, like we were – the bank account was going down drastically, and even though mentally I – knew after the first one what to expect from this and had done the maths, it still didn't help me in that way. Yep. But then to layer on top of this is like, oh, repairs. So like even more cash was required. So if you are going to go on a, a run or acquire more quickly, you need to be uh, in a position where you can handle that. Like it isn't available to anyone, just anyone. And uh, again, lending policy can change and bigger po- deposits can be required and a whole bunch of things can move through it. But I am still surprised to a degree of how much cash and liquidity is required when it comes to property investing. I concur on that. I agree. I, would, I did not expect it to be as big as it is. And I, I still feel as though there's like little, little personal – it's, it's probably a grand problem than anyone else. Like when I see like six figures going out of a bank account in one hit, I'm like, oh, ouch. 
You know what's going like, to happen. You still don't enjoy it. Like, it's just like, oh, my gosh. You're looking at it and going, this, this, this offset account looks great. And then it's like, what offset account? <laughs> As, but then you're like, oh, I've got another property. Got it. Yeah. So it's still, I don't think I'll ever get used to that. Should we go to the next point? Let's do it. Keeping going after beatdowns. Oh. Can I tell you something on this, Grant? Go. Yeah. Do you know I've quit property investing three times? Have you really? <laughs> it's just, that's it. I'm done. Yeah, I look at it and go, there was a point where we made the, I will say, interesting decision to buy two properties at once and have two settlements at once yep. with a uh, child in the first year of their age. Like, you know, Jack was only quite little and a, and a ton of things going on in the world. We overloaded ourselves way too much with doing that because we had an expectation that these settlements should go smoothly. That these banks, and I know we've mentioned this in a previous point, well, that's all going to be fine. Like, you know, all these things were there. And then when it wasn't, like it beat us down. Mm. Like after those properties had failed settlement numerous times and then finally settled, it was like we were just like we'd had enough. Like we'd really had enough. How interesting. Do you think, because that's a personal beatdown, like that's uh, you guys are knackered dealing with a child, dealing with like the business that you run, dealing with um, like two settlements at the same time, like that is just a barrage that very few humans will accept. So I, I just suspect that you would not go running into that situation again. <laughs> do you think that this beatdown also applies to like imagine someone buys a property that does not do too well and that it might go backwards or like it might drop in value to be more specific and someone looking at that saying, well, that's just a situation that it is going through now, but in the future it might or should come good. You know what? I'm happy to keep going even though I've been beaten down on this one. Yeah, so in our situation, what we didn't recognize was just how much work was going to be required. And it's like the risk was actually in the investor, not the investment. That's <clears throat> So those, to be clear, both of those properties have done fantastically well. Like I'm thrilled with them both, and in hindsight, you know, of course, not being in the pain of those moments now, look at it and go, it "Was a really good decision," but that was not an experience that was enjoyable. That was eating glass. It really was for us. I and a bit was going on for me in business as well, and then of course it was around like some. I think it was around an Easter or something where we had family events on as well. Like, <laughs> of course it was terrible planning on our part. Uh, I love that that separation that you put between like the investor. Versus the investment. Yeah. The beatdowns so happen to both. When we looked at it, which we got over it eventually after having a, a break from it, clearly. Yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> it was a spur of a moment thing. I'm still a little bit bitter if you haven't picked up on that and I probably wouldn't do it again. But when I look at that going forward, we just both recognize is why our life is like this, doing things like that doesn't make sense, even if the investment is good. Mm. So I would look at that for someone who's listening to this and saying, if your life is chaos right now and carnage, adding property investing in, probably not a great idea. Yeah, It's going to test you in different ways and you want to be prepared for that. Now, um, on the other side of thing, you mentioned a great point about like what if an investment hasn't gone well. I would find that far more challenging. So let's say you've just bought a place and I'll say for 500 grand and you've lost 100 grand on it. I'd get trigger shy, wouldn't you? Totally. I did, totally. Totally. So I'm always very impressed with people like Keith Cunningham or uh, many investors who bought like off-pan apartments, lost money, 
but then have been able to get the courage to get it back and get back on the horse. And I, I would like to believe that I am that type of person as well. I haven't experienced that type of thing, but I've certainly taken hits in business and then gotten back on the horse. Yep. So I, I'm sure it's a different way to think about it. It was actually an unexpected challenge of like speaking to other people that bought investment properties where they got beaten down and they were almost like trying to push it on me going, well, this is my journey. It's going to be the same for you. And that was actually a challenge where it was like, oh, okay, I see that your beat down to use this example on an investment is now you've taken it with you for the rest of the life to the point that you now want to influence other people. <laughs> I remember talking to a family friend and he's like, take it into property. This is worse. Let me tell you about the, the house that I bought off the plan and where that went. And I'm like, you've got to be so careful around beliefs here. So my belief is there's people that make money in property and there's people that lose money in property. And there's people that make money in shares and there's people that lose money in shares. And there's people that make money in business and there's people that lose money in business. And my fundamental view on investing, business and life is there's people who have done well and not well at everything. If you're looking for blanket rules, it generally doesn't go well. I can't totally. find any evidence of it. Can you tell me a blanket? Tell me anything where it's like everyone gets the same result. No, it, no. And, and it's not even a bell curve. <laughs> it's not even like, well, everyone just kind of roughly lands in the middle. And like everyone's like these extremes to the other side. It's like, no, it's not even that. I've literally given two people the same book and they've come to a different outcome. <laughs> right? Totally. It's like it, there's just in everything, there's such things. So it's so dangerous in the idea of that, you know, hey, if, you know, I heard this guy, you know, he, he ate a meal once and he got food poisoning and he died. Fuck, better not eat again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yes. I, I love that example. I find this fascinating. See, I haven't gone through personally any beatdowns as an investor yet. Noting that like we've bought houses approximately six months apart from each other, being very methodical around like how do we just like smoothly go through the thing. However, I'm I'm acutely aware that on my accumulator run now, I suspect I'm gonna get a beatdown <laughs> at some point. It's coming, that, it's going to happen. And totally. to your point, it might be that you have a kid and you don't have time for property at that point. It might be the market turns. It might be, or well, I better say you have had a beat down. Interest rates go up. Fair, that's, that's fair. That is fair. I would suspect that for many people right now, interest rates have gone up and it's been a bit of a beat down and it's stopped them. Totally. Yeah. I I love the boxing analogy because it was definitely a knock down and I, I got to the like the count of five. <laughs> and I was then I was like I was brushing off the gloves and I'm like, ah, let's go again. Versus like a complete knockout where I'm just like, I'm not touching that that thing with a 10-foot pole. So these are the dangerous ones, right? These are the ones I find really interesting. Is like if you get into something and have a truly bad experience, it's easy to go, I'm not gonna do that again. Yeah. It's these ones here where it's like, oh, interest rates have gone up and they sideline you. And it's like you end up on the sideline for too long. You end up like actually not getting back into it. You kind of stay on the fence start watching the news and doubting yourself. And it's like you kind of created your own beatdown. Yeah, and then your belief continues to fulfill its own prophecy. Huge, absolutely huge. Do you want to jump into the next one? Absolutely. This is the last one on the list, Grant. And I'm going to say potentially one of the most challenging ones. Property investing is fast but slow. All right, expand. In the example that I've spoken about, you know, buying two properties, it was full on for a period of about three weeks, really full on. Now, that's a fast period where it's full on, but to get the results from that is like a 10, 20, 30 year game. Mm. 
So you find yourself like in this zone of like it's action-packed and exciting and then you're buying stuff, but then the result cycle or even like other areas of property is like you want to set yourself up for the perspective of a longer-term game. So what is unexpected about this though to answer the question more directly is it's not that I didn't know property was a long-term game. It's just that I didn't think I would be as wanting it to go faster as I did. It's like, poke yeah, it. you we knew it's slow. It. Come on, man, do something. Completely. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> and, but to that point, I think, like, obviously I've, I've purchased majority over the last uh, two, three years, and it's been quite volatile, to say the least, Charlie. Like, huge upswings. Hugely exciting time in and, property up and down. Totally, to the point that there is actually a lot of news talking about property. But mentally, uh, I know that there's going to be like a five-year period of like not much. <laughs> and I'm just like, how am I going to deal with that? Like that is – like, right now I have these expectations of like this is how it is. Like I get to go get a revaluation. I'm like, oh, my gosh, 50 grand just appeared. And I get to go, oh, look at these reports of double-digit suburb growths from CoreLogic. I'm like, this is like so exciting. Like just what happens when it all goes back to like some kind of normality? Just an equilibrium of now it's like real steady growth of rents, real steady growth of value increases or decreases, and it's just slow. We want the excitement of day trading, but the results of Warren Buffett. Totally. Via property, yes. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I'm going for. And so uh, this this has been something that has been on my mind quite a bit because I'm like, I'm loving it. The energy is great. The communities are on fire. Everyone's oh, it's a fun thing. I'm getting excited oh. even now, Grant. Let's just go buy and sell a property today. Let's do but it. This is, but this is the thing. Everyone like is fueling themselves. And I'm like, this is such a false economy. I'm like, this is just not how it's going to be. Everyone's going to be just change and go elsewhere. And I'm like, and I... I've loosely expected it or I'm loosely expecting it. However, I know when I'm there, I'm going to sit there and go, I did not expect it to be so slow, so non-interactive. Like I, I just, I think this is one of the things that a lot of people are getting in now just might come up against and go, oh shit, it doesn't go up like it did before. I'll, I'll, I'll go through something here and then I want to talk about what I've actually done to get over this because I think it will be really helpful for people. Awesome. So Vanguard did some research on the people that have been most successful with uh, their products, which they make like index funds and ETFs and a whole bunch of stuff. And they found this whole conglomerate of people that are like the most successful investors they've had. And it was like really fascinating. Do you want to know the most fascinating thing about this conglomerate of people? I, I know what you're going to say, but I'm just going to take a check. They kept trading in, trading out, jumping on, like just trying to pick the, the right thing. They're all deceased. So they didn't do anything. <laughs> so they didn't do anything. So it was the people who invested and didn't touch it that were the most successful. They literally just bought. And I was like, so the message to get from that is that over trading and overdoing things can actually lead to a lesser result. Tinkering with the thing, trying to trade up. Like, oh, I've got great returns. Let's get it out and let's go and grab another better one. Yeah, the actual benefit could be just not touching the thing. Warren Buffett himself talks about the challenge of not this as well. Like overtrading is a real thing. We hear a story, we, we do this thing, we think we should sell a property. I don't think we're inherently wired well to think long term. I really don't. Completely. 
Yeah, so there's got to be some awareness to that, particularly in property because it is such a long-term asset. Because of the nature of stamp duty and agent fees, trading property just doesn't make sense. Maybe if stamp duty changes, a new world of property may open up. Fingers crossed. I would love that because then we can day trade property. But we'll <laughs> we'll come back to that at another point. But I found that really interesting. The second component is that if you look to the results in property, people who have bought really well and just left it have done well. They are the ones that have this skill set of just being able to like buy the thing. And I love how your example was like pass away. So they could, that was like they were forced not to touch it. But it's like, it's so, it's such against human nature of just having the thing and just like, just leave it. it it's fine. Just leave it alone. Just yeah, not selling in the panic moments and not getting greedy in the FOMO moments. Right. Exactly. It's like, that's what's really fascinating about that. Um, but coming back to property here is that um, I look at it and go, if you don't scratch this itch somewhere in your life, you're going to destroy your portfolio, So is you my see, view. So you see this as not a disciplined play where it's like, hey, just don't touch it. Look at it. <laughs> what does the parents say to the kid? Like, look at the puppy, but don't touch the puppy. <laughs> like, it's fine by itself. It might bite you. That is like, the worst analogy ever. I'm going to say <laughs> it like, that. It has somewhere. nothing to do with that at all. I'm going to put it this way. is like, I'm going to say that human beings have this need to fulfill this, this excitement they need in their life. It's not optional. You're going to find it one way or another. So when you look at this is that you're either going to tinker with your portfolio and potentially break it, or you're going to need to find things in your life that can fulfill that for you, that can fill that cup. So to use an analogy that does make sense instead of what a, whatever you were saying then is like if you're addicted to riding a bike, right, but you know riding a bike isn't good for you, well, then maybe it makes sense to go for a big run in the morning so you're too tired from your run that you don't want to ride your bike, yeah. right? See so yeah, how you're putting a measure in place to be preventative in that way. So the way I've actually done this is going, well, okay, instead of focusing on, you know, tinkering with the portfolio or overdoing it, because there is certainly to the point of this active things you can do, but there's a point where that becomes counting productive. Like doing more activeness doesn't tinkering. release that, too much tinkering. It's going, well, where can I be effective? So the thing I've looked at is number one, raise income. Yep. What if I could get the kicks out of property that I get out of increasing my income, which in turn gets me more of what I want in property? I think that's a really powerful one. Um, second one is I've actually taken up golf. You have two hobbies. Yeah. So last, what once upon in my life, uh, I would go into bed and literally just scroll property content, I'm watching Phil Anderson, you know, latest yardney thing. I'm, I'm watching this stuff every night, and that's really dangerous for me. That's like prime tinkering. I'll hear an idea, and then before you know it, I'm like, burn it. <laughs> Let's <yeah>. go. <laughs> well, last night I was literally watching a video on golf, a new golf exercise for the range next time we go. Yep. So I can see that I'm I'm intentionally taking my intention away from the thing which could potentially lead to my demise here. They're actually really interesting strategies. And it's, yeah, it, instead of just trying to force yourself to not touch, it's find something else to do with your time that fulfills that desire for excitement. Yeah, like desire. It's a habit change strategy. You know, totally. again, they talk about the idea of if someone's addicted to a certain food, you don't just take the food away from them because there's nothing in the void. You but you've got to give them a, an alternative to put into there so they do it. So the first thing someone does when they get up every morning is have a cigarette. If you put a new morning activity in that they enjoy more than a cigarette or can condition themselves for that, then they won't do that. 
And that's like a, a strategy in many place of like habit replacement. I, get, I can see all these property investors like going out <laughs> like for morning runs and things now. People are like, why why'd you take out morning runs? So I don't touch my property portfolio. So like, ooh, <laughs> played around a golf, didn't buy a rooming house off the plan. Yes, <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> but but uh, funny that you mentioned that because it was it's one of those challenges. I, I think that it would be so difficult to find out why you keep touching the thing and why the thing's not creating the results you want. And the actual the actual problem is that well you're doing too much. Like just slow down, let it let it do its thing and fill that void with to your point, something completely different. Best example of this, gambling. Right, so when you look at gamblers and what goes off is when they win and they get that rush, is it can lead to addictive behavior? Yep. Uh, we stand right now is that uh, as someone who has enjoyed a fair few gambling stints in my time, do enjoy going to Crown every now and again. Um, as someone who's traded shares as well, same, exactly the same, that rush. And property does have a lot of those same characteristics. Yep. It really does. So if you're in there, and I'll even say this, like I did a development where I made substantial money, that rush and excitement of pulling it off, then oh, again, which yeah. could be the very dangerous thing that comes with it. Really, you want, the, you want the rush of doing the thing because your body thinks that doing the thing is the thing that doing the thing actually creates the outcome you're looking for, as opposed to potentially it doesn't. Like it's not. Sometimes time's got to do some of the work. Long time horizons got to do some of the work. I love these. This has been an interesting list. It's, it's actually no. It has actually been an unexpected list to frame it more nicely. I like it. It's an unexpectedly interesting conversation we've had on this. So if you've listened to this and you're like, Charlie Grant, this was valuable, reply back to the newsletter. And if you're sitting there with me saying that and you go, Grant, how do I get on the newsletter? That is a very good question. You can actually head over to propertyandinvesting.com forward slash newsletter, put in your name and email. And again, then you'll be able to get an email because we notify you every time we drop one of these episodes and you'll be able to reply and let us know what you took away from this or any of your unexpected challenges. Just want to say thank you again for joining us and we'll catch you on the next episode, Property and Investing.